So I've already told you, according to God's blueprint, a healthy church prays big prayers. But what do you think? Do you pray big prayers or small prayers? Do you pray big prayers or small prayers? Let me give you an example of a big prayer. Give me Scotland or I die. That's the famous prayer of a man named John Knox, who in the 16th century was a Roman Catholic priest in Scotland when he began reading books espousing Protestant theology coming over from Europe and became convinced through the study of the Bible that salvation came by faith alone in Christ alone. Immediately, he resigned his post as a priest and became a personal bodyguard to one of the Scottish lords who was endeavoring to see the Church of Scotland become a healthy church, reformed according to the Word of God. Pretty soon, he was exiled from Scotland to Switzerland, where he led an English-speaking church and began plotting his return to Scotland, where, by God's grace, he saw the beginning of Reformation. He's known to us as the founder of Presbyterianism, and he prayed, Dear God, give me Scotland or I die. John Knox, the great reformer, a man of big prayer. Mary, Queen of Scots, said this about him. She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Big prayer. I don't know if anybody knows when I'm praying or what I'm praying for. I don't know if anyone shakes in their boots when they think about Brad Mills at prayer. But I desperately want to be a person who prays big prayers. And I believe God is calling our church to be a church that prays like that. Prays big prayers. That's what Paul's talking to us about from 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I call them big prayers because I know you saw it in verse 1. He says, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. That's a big prayer. Nothing is excluded. This is all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And it's the kind of prayer that you and I must learn to pray if we're gonna be a healthy church. So we're gonna walk through this and I'm gonna show you three qualities of big prayers. Number one, they're multifaceted. Okay, you can write this down later. They're multifaceted, they are expansive, And there's another one that I'm not quite remembering off the top of my head, but I can assure you it's here in my notes. And when the time comes, I'll tell you. But first, I want to think with you about what prayer is in and of itself. If I just ask you, as I plan to ask my connect group on Wednesday night, what is prayer? What do you think you'd say? Prayer's talking to God. Prayer's expressing our needs. Prayer's a big category of things we do towards God. I've put it like this. Prayer is an expression of our dependence on God, a recognition that he must provide all of our needs. Whatever you do when you bow your head and words come out of your mouth or are expressed in your heart, you are fundamentally expressing your dependence on God. You're admitting to him that you don't have the answers. You don't have the resources, and you're looking to the one who does. You're asking him to be God in the circumstances of your life in very particular ways. Y'all pray like that? Expressing your dependence on him, trusting that all the things you need are gonna come to you from his hand. 
That is prayer. And every church begins as an answer to prayer. I mean, think about it. Our church in October of 1939 began when a group of people gathered in the pavilion at Longer Park and started setting out plans for becoming Central Baptist Church. They prayed. God, do you want us to start a church? God, if you want us to start a church, you're gonna have to bless us. You're gonna have to provide for us. You're gonna have to give us some land to build a building on. You're gonna have to provide the resources to build it. Every church begins as an answer to prayer. The church in Ephesus did. Paul setting about on his missionary journeys, asking God for wisdom. Where should I go next? Where should I preach? God, give me wisdom, give me power, open up a wide door of opportunity for me. And God did. God opened a door in Ephesus and Paul preached and people were saved. And everywhere you looked, people and crickets were gathering together to learn from God and to be his church in Ephesus. Every church begins as an answer to prayer. But here's the problem. Those people who in their infancies were as dependent on God as a crying baby is on its mother soon get pretty strong on their own. And they can stand on their own two feet and they can provide what they need to keep their church going. And though the church began independence, it soon becomes independent. Though it once relied on God to provide everything it needed, it soon becomes self-sufficient. They have everything they need to do the kind of church they wanna do. And so Paul looks at a church just like that, the church in Ephesus, a church that had begun in prayer, but had slowly drifted away to the point that when Paul starts laying out his tasks for Timothy, hey, when we think about the things you gotta do in this church, buddy, first thing I want you to do is get the people praying again. He knew they had drifted off their initial dependence and started living independently of God. And so he called them back to prayer, but not just any kind of prayer, not just whatever they felt in the moment, but to big prayers, to all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. In fact, the first thing I want you to see this morning is that the kind of prayer a healthy church prays, the kind of big prayer that you and I need to learn to pray are multifaceted prayers rather than one-dimensional prayers. They're multifaceted rather than one-dimensional. Paul tells us this in verse one. First, I urge petitions, prayers, and intercessions with thanksgivings. Four different words for one specific act. You think about that, these terms are interchangeable. They're used in various places throughout the New Testament uh, in various ways, there's overlaps between them. But at the same time, when Paul starts to call the church to prayer, he doesn't just say, y'all pray. He paints a multifaceted picture. He shows them every side of the diamond so they have the full picture of what he's talking about. The prayer Paul's looking for is not following a checklist. And he doesn't give them the exact words to say. He just says, pray like this. He says, pray petitions, which are specific requests for specific needs. A petition is different than the kind of prayer you often pray, the kind of prayer that I always pray. I say, God bless my family. That's a great umbrella prayer. 
That covers lots of bases. God knows what I need before I ask, so I'm just gonna throw out there the general and let him fill in the details on the particulars. But petitions bring specific requests before God. Dear God, help my family figure out our new routines in this school year. Dear God, give me patience with my daughter and son. Not just bless my family, but get involved in the nitty gritty details of my everyday life. We're gonna petition God with specific requests for specific needs. Prayer is the general attitude of coming before God to request his help. So we're not just saying these petitions to the wind. We're not making little prayer flags like they've got up on Mount Everest and hoping that somebody somewhere sees them flowing in the breeze. We are taking our specific needs and requests and we are by the blood of Jesus entering into the throne room of God looking for his mercy and grace in our time of need. We're coming before God. He's our heavenly father. Jesus says in Matthew chapter six that he knows what we need before we even ask. So we don't have to worry if we got all the words right. We just come before him and simply express the specific needs we have for the specific circumstances in our lives. Paul says number three, we're gonna come with intercessions. Now, intercessions are the prayers you pray on behalf of other people. That's when you, imagine this, are in prayer before God. Do you ever visualize coming before the throne of God? My life changed when I started doing this. I had a friend who talked to me about R.A. Torrey's book, How to Pray. And in that book, R.A. Torrey, who was a preacher in the early 20th century, talked about when we enter into God's throne room, it's as if God bends down from his throne and turns his ear toward us so that his complete attention and focus is directed on us. So I started imagining sometimes that when I'm praying, I'm not just offering my prayers from my seat up to heaven, but that I'm right before the throne of God and he's listening with me. But now when I intercede, I'm not there alone. But I've come into God's presence and I've brought somebody with me by the hand. And as God listens to my prayer, I'm pointing to them. And I say, God, I know how you have been for me. I know how you have worked in my life. Now here's my friend, here's my son, here's my coworker. Bless them the way you have blessed me. Show them the grace and mercy that you've shown me. You're interceding on behalf of someone else. You've brought them before the throne of God and you are asking for him to work in their life. He says, you gotta intercede. And you gotta express thanks. Don't just come to God with what you need, but come to him with thanksgiving, giving him gratitude for all that he's already given to you. Listen, the Bible says that God has so richly blessed you, you can't even imagine. He says that every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above. If there's any good thing in your life, it's there because God's given it to you. And you owe him thanks for all those things. Now, does that sound like one-dimensional prayer to you, or does that sound incredibly rich and multidimensional? That's the kind of prayer God wants us to pray. It's the kind of communication that you'd expect between two people. And God is personal. He's not an abstract being or thing, but he's your father who gave to you his son and who has sent to you his spirit so that you can have a personal, intimate, daily relationship so that you can communicate with him. Now imagine if the most significant people in your life suffered from the kind of communication that God offers, often suffers from from us. What if you walked into your house at the end of a long work day and said to your spouse or to your children the same 15 words every day? 
Honey, thank you for being here. I'm so glad to be home. I'll talk to you later. And yet in our communication with God, that's how things often are. We're one dimensional. Dear God, thank you for my family. Thank you for this day. Help us get a good night's rest and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. That is the routine one dimensional prayer that our rich prayer life often settles into. It's the same kind of stuff we teach our kids. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands, we all are blessed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. Did y'all pray that one as a child? Just teach your kids. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. We know these prayers. We, we were taught these prayers. Some of us were raised in traditions that taught us the Our Father prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know these prayers by heart. We recite them word for word without thinking sometimes. They are routine. And though as we've grown older, we have graduated from those form prayers, is it not true that sometimes the same attitude continues into adulthood and spiritual maturity? The words have changed, but the routine attitude of our heart is still the same. We close our eyes, we cross our hands, and we run through the same words we pray day after day after day. Paul says your prayer is not going to be like that, that your prayer is going to be multidimensional. It's going to be suited to the exact circumstances you're in in that moment. You're going to look at your world and bring to God the things that you need him to do. If you want to be a healthy church, Paul says you pray prayers like this. There's a rich variety to a church at prayer. But number two, he says the prayers that healthy church prays are audacious rather than guarded. Audacious rather than guarded. Paul says this in verse two. He explains what he means when he says, I want you to pray these kind of prayers for everybody, for all people. He says, for kings and those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. These are big prayers. Big prayers for everyone. And when Paul says everyone, that's what he means. He says for kings and for those in authority, the well-to-do, the well-respected, the people who in Ephesus carried themselves as people worthy of distinction and respect. Paul says, I gotta pray for them. Now, I find this is interesting because I can't imagine a harder group of people to pray for in the early 60s AD when Paul was writing this letter. I mean, I don't know if you know the story of the Apostle Paul very well. You could read it in the book of Acts. But Paul often came up against the authority of the very people he's talking about. Whether they were the religious authorities who ran the synagogues in the cities he visited and who saw to it that he didn't have an opportunity to preach. They often beat him with rods. He was stoned where they threw rocks at him until he died. And he, he was stoned twice, left for dead, and miraculously, by the grace of God, escaped. I mean, everywhere Paul went, kings and those who were in authority were hounding him. And he says, pray for these kind of people. He is, of course, echoing the words of Jesus, who told all of his followers in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's what Paul says. Pray for the very people you hate 
and despise. Pray for the people who would make your life miserable. Pray for the people who very well may have your head on a platter, as we discover the Apostle Paul experienced at the hands of the Emperor Nero only a few years after he wrote this letter. Pray for them, everybody. Nobody is excluded. Now, to me, that's startling. I mean, I don't, we're not living in times of persecution like Paul experienced, but there's, if I'm allowed to say this, there's a little bit of social pressure on faithful Christians living in the public square. Sometimes embarrassing or a little bit concerning to have to express your personal convictions. You just rather keep your mouth shut. And for people like that, our prayers tend towards a more guarded approach. For example, rather than praying for our government leaders, we might just ask that God would spare us from persecution or that he would carve out a little place for us to live a faithful Christian life or that God wouldn't allow our conversations at work to turn towards spiritual things so that we don't have to out ourselves as one of those crazy Christians. That's a guarded prayer. That's a prayer that says, I know what God is capable of doing in the world and there's nobody can help our situation as a nation or as a state or as a city. So there's not even any point in praying that God would do anything about the major problems we're facing. So let's set our bar a little lower. Let's pray for something more within the realm of possibility, something we could actually see God doing. And so God, just carve out a space for us to exist here in the world. But that's not the kind of prayer Paul says to pray. He says, I want you to pray an audacious prayer. I want you to take all those people who hate you and despise you, and I want you to bring them before God. Take them by the hand, walk them into God's throne room, and subject them to the only authority that is above them, the creator and maker of the world himself. After all, the Bible says that there's no authority except from God, and those which are in authority are there because God's put them there. Proverbs 21 said, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So Paul said, you don't have to set your eyes so low. You don't have to have such a guarded expectation of prayer. You ought to be audacious. You ought to think about those people you despise and bring them before God and pray that he would radically up in their world, that they would have a life-changing encounter with Jesus so that the policies they've built their whole political career on would suddenly be so abhorrent to them they'd want nothing to do with them. Could God do that? Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. If Paul's the worst, that means politicians, bureaucrats, movie makers, TV producers, news personalities, they have a shot. If God can save Paul, he can save anybody. And that's what Paul says we ought to pray. I mean, imagine this audacious prayer. How many of you ever pray for revival? You pray for like a fresh move of God on our nation so that just dramatically the church would come back to life and people everywhere would repent of their sins, right? Good. Keep praying that. Where do you pray for that to begin? In yourself. I love that. I knew you were going to say that. The 930 crowd said that too. So y'all are reading the same books and thinking the same things. But listen, we expect revival to happen from the inside out. And we should. It's the way revival always begins. When God's people humble themselves before him, seek his face, he hears from heaven, and he, he heals our land, right? That's the promise. But what if we also prayed, not just that God would do revival from the inside out, 
but that revival would sweep across our nation from the east and the west. From the halls of Congress in Washington, D.C., God, let revival come. Bring them all to Jesus, then let them settle their differences. Start on the West Coast in the Hollywood studios, God. Would the things we turn on the TV be uplifting and edifying rather than filled with junk? God, send revival and start in the East and start in the West and let it meet here in the middle. What if we prayed for our city leaders? Not just that as they think about future growth coming to this part of the country, that they would figure out how to plan infrastructure projects and do tax incentives and stuff to increase economic opportunity. But what if they also thought about the kind of policies that would encourage our city to flourish, that young families would wanna move here and plant their roots here? What if they found a way to elevate everyone on the economic ladder instead of just a few? Wouldn't that be something? And Paul says, don't think too small when you pray. Don't think too guarded. Don't set your eyes too low. But pray audacious prayers, prayers that nobody would ever expect God to answer. Because after all, Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Prayers that are audacious from our perspective are insignificant to God. Nothing will be impossible for him. So we need to pray audacious prayers rather than guarded prayers. And lastly, we need to pray expansive prayers rather than narrow prayers. And what I mean by expansive is broad or wide. Paul says this in verses three to seven. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul tells Timothy to pray big prayers, and he says, this is good. Listen, there is an inherent goodness to praying big prayers, to praying audacious prayers multifaceted prayers. It's good and it pleases God. Like when God hears his church praying those prayers, it pleases him. I wonder if it's because he sees in us genuine faith that believes that he's capable of doing more than we ask or think. Is he pleased because it shows our heart of dependency that we really look to him as our father and provider. It pleases him. Now, Paul says it pleases him because prayers that are big and expansive like that perfectly align with God's desire for our world. There's nothing small about God's plan. I mean, you saw what he said. God's desire is for all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's will. That's God's desire. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's an expansive view from the world. That's a, that's a view of the world where God says, I'm looking out on all the people of the earth and there's not a person there that I don't want to save. All a billion of them. Nobody's so far from me 
that my mercy can't find them. That's what Paul says. Paul gave, Paul said, God gave me mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and because he wanted to use me as an example of what his grace could do for everybody who turns to Jesus and believes for eternal life. Nobody is outside of the field of God's view. I love the way the one hymn writer said it. He says, there's a wideness to God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. Imagine you're in a boat and every way you look is endless ocean. That is the mercy of God for our world. It's infinite, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, overflowing for the world. And our vision is often so narrow. God says this, the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to a few. The Lord is good to me and mine. The Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all his works. He says in Ezekiel 33, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn away from his way and live. Second Peter 3, 9, God is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is God's desire. This is how expansive his view of our world is. Now, lay on top of that the breadth of your prayers. How wide does the circle of your prayer go? To yourself, to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your neighborhood, to your church? Do you pray for everyone, all people? Paul says we ought to pray for all people. And the only way to really pray for all people and to develop the desire to pray for all people is to have our hearts aligned with God. And so he says, there is one God. I hope we're all agreed on that reality. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, when Moses taught the people to pray, he said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one God. There is one God. Now, I know that there are people around the world who bow down and worship things that they call gods, but they are not gods. They are not the one true God. There is only one God, the creator of the world, the father who sent his son Jesus to live a sinless life and to suffer on the cross for our sins, who raised him up and seated him at his right hand. The God who sent his spirit to indwell us and to bring us into his family, who cries out from our hearts, Abba, Father, who prays for us when we don't know what to pray with groanings that can't be uttered. There's only one God. Doesn't it stand to reason if there's only one God, then that one God ought to be worshiped by all people. We can infer that from what the scripture teaches. We were made for him. There's only one. Then Paul says there's one mediator. There's one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, the mediator is a person who stands between two parties at odds. They're a third party who comes in to reconcile the two. Paul says Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity. The Bible says that by nature, we are children of wrath, destined for destruction. We are enemies of God. And when we stand before him and give an account of our life, he's just and holy and will send us to eternal punishment. 
But there's a mediator, a go-between, someone who can reconcile us and bring us to God. And Paul says that man is Jesus. It's Jesus alone. Jesus said it like this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter says in Acts chapter 4 in a sermon he delivered, he said, There is but one name given among men under heaven by which we may be saved. It's the name of Jesus. There's only one God for all 8 billion people on earth. There's only one way to get to him. God doesn't accept people's sincere efforts from other religions. We must be saved by turning to Christ. There's one mediator. And the reason Jesus makes such an excellent mediator is because he gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. It's hard to wrap your mind around the reality that God wants all people to be saved. And yet Paul tells us again and again and again that the best proof that that is real is what he did in Jesus. That God demonstrated his love for us in this way. That while we were yet enemies and separated by a gulf of our sin, Christ died for us. A ransom is the payment given to release a person from slavery and bondage. And after living a sinless life, Jesus offered himself on the cross to pay the penalty, to pay the price of our sin. Because of his death and by faith in him, you can be set free, forgiven, and reconciled to God so that the one God who made you and who loves you and who has a plan for your life can be the Father who hears your prayers. There's one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom, the testimony given at the right time. And then Paul says, of course this is true because God didn't keep this good news message of the gospel hidden away in a corner. He didn't reserve it for one people alone, but he sent it out to every corner of the world. And Paul himself was a proof of that. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, sent to make sure that everybody, regardless of where they came from or what language they spoke, could hear the good news, the mediator, Jesus. So when God sets out to fulfill his plan for the world, nobody's left out. He doesn't have a narrow view of what, God want, of what he wants to do. He has an expansive view that takes in every corner of the globe. And then you have people, like people in the church of Ephesus, these false teachers who were obviously thinking of themselves as the elite, men that Paul says who focused on myths and endless genealogies, constantly encouraging people to trace their family history to prove that they were in on the grace and mercy of God. Men who wanted to be teachers of the law, though they understood nothing about what they're making confident assertions. People who said, you gotta obey these points if you wanna experience God's grace. People who were drawing the circle of God's mercy and goodness so small that they and their friends alone fit in it. They suffered from what John Stott, the English preacher called the monopoly spirit, which shows up anytime pride or prejudice leads us to draw the circle of God's grace more narrowly than he does. Stott names racism classism, nationalism, and every other ism that exists as evidence of that monopoly spirit. 
And I'd like to think that no church today suffers from that kind of attitude. Certainly, no church would turn people away because of the color of their skin, because of how much money they make, because of the place they come from or the language they speak. We wouldn't do that. But where the monopoly spirit is likely to show up is in our prayers. Who do we pray for? You know, we're not near as bad as that one guy who bowed his head before the Lord and said, Dear God, bless me and my wife, my son John and his wife, and us four and no more. We would never do that. That's a bad preacher joke. Nobody actually prays that. But how expansive is the circle of your prayer life? Me and mine and my friends and my neighborhood and my city and my church and my country. There's power in prayer that aligns with God's will and God's desire. John says it like this, that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have whatever we ask of him. You're telling me that the Bible has a guarantee on prayer. If I pray according to God's will, my prayers are going to be answered. And so if that exists, I want to pray the things that God desires. And right here, Paul says that God's desire is that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I wonder, how often do you pray that prayer? How often does your prayer circle align with the expansive vision of God for our world, for our city even? God, we pray that every person in Luling, Texas would know the life-saving message of the gospel. They would hear the hope of the gospel and they would know and follow Jesus. You can tell God this. God, we heard today in church that your desire is that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God, give us the privilege of seeing you prove yourself faithful to an audacious prayer. A prayer that, oh Lord, I feel foolish to even ask you this. But would you save every person in our one mile radius? God, would you let every kid at Shanklin Elementary School grow up in a Christian home? God, would our church develop a reputation that reaches far beyond our sphere of influence? Would you show us as a shining example of what you want to do in every small town in Texas? Would you use us to bless not just our city or our state, but would you use us to change the world? I'm speaking like a madman. And yet that's exactly what God tells us a healthy church does. A healthy church prays expansive prayers. There's no part of this globe that shouldn't be included in our prayers. And I know that seems a little staggering, so maybe you need to get on the Joshua Project website because you want to pray for the nations of the world who don't know Jesus, but you don't even know them. You follow along with their prayer guide that'll tell you what nation to pray for every day. But you don't just pray for your kids, but you pray for the kids in their classroom. You don't just pray for your grandkids, but you pray for your friend's grandkids. That you don't offer just general requests for blessing, but you go specifically to the Lord and ask for exactly what you need. According to God's blueprint, a healthy church prays these big kind of prayers. 
They're audacious, multifaceted. They're expansive. And so can I challenge you to become a person who prays prayers like that? Oh God, give us Luling, Texas, or we die. Give me my family. Don't let me close my eyes for the last time without seeing every one of my family members walking with you. Pray audacious prayers. And listen, this morning, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know him. The life of prayer that we're talking about this morning comes to those who walk with God. The Bible specifically says that your sins have made it so he doesn't hear. Sin creates separation between us and God. We were made to know him and to walk with him, but we rebel against him. We all like sheep go astray. We turn everyone to his own way. Because of that, we often pray and feel like our prayers get no farther than the ceiling above our heads. They bounce back down on us and we wonder, God, are you there? We have no hope for answered prayers apart from trusting in Christ for salvation. Every answered prayer, every blessing that you long for in your family and life comes to you on the purchase of Jesus Christ by his blood. The Bible says that we come to God's throne to receive mercy and grace, not because of the good things we've done, but by the new and living way that Jesus Christ opened up into God's throne room by his blood. So if you do not know Jesus Christ, today I want to invite you to do what the Bible says to do, to confess your sins, to place your faith completely in Jesus, to trust him to save you, to commit to obeying him, whatever he calls you to do. If you've never done that after the service, I'm going to be back here in the gathering place. I would love to speak with you about it. There's no reason for you to leave here today without knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that God is going to hear your prayers. Church family, will you pray with me?